and welcome to another episode of the Capitol Record National Review's very own podcast dedicated to the defense of a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, David Bonson. I am loving what we're doing so far in 2024. If you missed the first episode of the year with Dan Clifton, we really got into the politics of what 2024 is going to represent. If you missed the second week with Sam Rines of Corbu, we got into markets and the macroeconomic uh, expectations for 2024. I don't know how you can have more fun than this. And then now, here today, our third episode of 2024, I'm going to bring back to Capitol Record Ed Pinto, who runs the uh, American Enterprise Institute Housing Center. I am positive. He is the foremost housing economist in the country for decades after serving as the chief risk officer at Fannie Mae in the 80s, amongst just a number of senior positions in housing and mortgage finance and other um, uh, points of expertise. We are going to talk about 2024's outlook for housing. So this is kind of what we're doing, tackling earlier in the year the big picture subjects. Let's bring on Ed Pinto. So with that said, allow me to welcome back to the Capitol Record for a second time um, a gentleman I consider to be one of the foremost experts on housing in America, uh, Edward Pinto of the American Enterprise Institute Housing Center. Ed, welcome back to National Review's Capitol Record. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Well, I uh, feel that we've been talking much more than we have been recently because I have been so uh, heavily absorbing a lot of your content, particularly around the the end of the year and some of the material you, you've recently put out. The main agenda I have for our talk today is just as we go into 2024 to give listeners a little bit of lay of the land as to how you're seeing the state of the housing market, and that can cover a lot of dimensions, and, and we'll do a lot of that. But I think I'd like to start with what I believe is sort of the most fundamental or, or even obvious question that I just remain as a, a pretty studious economist totally confused by. And that is how prices have held up, not uh, again, recognizing the supply constraints we're going to talk about, facing the affordability levels that we're talking about. In other words, just based on the percentage of wallet that a house payment cost for an American to buy a home these days, how have prices not um, cleared to facilitate greater affordability? I think, uh, David, the answer is that there are plenty of well-qualified buyers for the relatively few houses that are on the market. How do we know, you know, there are relatively few houses on the market? A, um, we see, you know, the the number of houses that uh, are in inventory to be sold. Uh, we focus a lot in my work on months inventory, and months inventory is still down at um, a little bit over three months. Uh, put that in context. Um, the lowest we'd ever run into up until 2019 was probably 3.6 months. Um, that was a low over 40-year period. Um, and we we got down to that level, below that level uh, in 2019. We busted through it big time during the pandemic with the Fed 
um, stimulus and zero interest rates and quantitative easing and all of that. And we got down to something above uh, two and a half, around two and a half, which I don't, you know, never is a long time, but it's going to be a long time before we, you know, see that again. So we're still in a very strong seller's market. If you have plenty of well qualified buyers, and we do have a lot of well qualified buyers, the economy is still very strong, uh, relatively speaking. Unemployment is still very low. Um, and there aren't that many houses on the market, um, those buyers bid up the houses or keep those prices uh, elevated, which is why uh, we saw uh, year over year our projection for the end of 2023, which is based on data that's already in the books, because those transactions have already closed. Uh, they just haven't hit the public records yet um, but they and been published, but they've, they've closed in December. Uh, and we know that house prices are up about 5.5% year over year notwithstanding the increase in rates. Um, secondly, our projection for 2024 is a 5% increase, um, which is actually pretty strong given that inflation has has, has come down, depending on which measure you use, but that's, that's above in inflation. I would note that on the interest rate side, uh, I just, we happened to publish this today, uh, or you know, at the beginning of the year, 2024, and uh, rates started the year in 2023 at um, a little uh, around six and six and five eighths, and they ended the year just around six and five eighths. But in the meantime, they hit eight uh, percent, and so we had a pretty uh, unusual round trip. But we ended pretty much where we started, um, and so again, it's not too surprising that the markets held up better than it appears, notwithstanding the affordability challenges. And that uh, interest rate story kind of mirrors the bond market. We started, you know, around three nine. We got up to five on the ten year, and then came basically closing the year back at three nine, allowing the total return on the bonds to be equal to the coupon, even though there was a really significant level of volatility along the way. So the bond market and the mortgage market mirrored one another in that in that sense. Um, it's difficult, and this is where your research is just so uh, impressive to me, because I'm talking to you and listeners are hearing us right now around this sort of fictitious national housing market. And so we talk about, I think you said 5% uh, HPA for 2023, home price appreciation. And yet I was taken aback by your uh, end of the year report that, for example, Austin, Texas seems to have experienced... 4%, 3.8% depreciation year over year, Austin being one of the hottest markets and right. in the, in the sort of Sunbelt region pre-2023. Um, uh, <clears throat> other markets that also had done well slowed down. Some markets that had really struggled seemed to pick up a little bit. I think San Jose was in that list. Um, how, how do you think about the regional local reality of what's happening in the housing market right now is a lot of what we see in year-over-year -year comparisons really uh, more about what took place a year ago than what's going on now. Well, David, there's some of that, but what, what we're really seeing play out is that uh, markets that grew rapidly from 2012 through the pandemic um, are a bit of taking a bit of a breather. Uh, markets that um, didn't grow that much um, pre-pandemic, but grew a lot during the pandemic, 
kind of fit into two categories. New York is doing better uh, than some other places because New York didn't grow much during uh, the pre-pandemic or the pandemic, and therefore it's gotten a bit more affordable, relatively speaking. But the places that are really shining are places like Grand Rapids, where Grand Rapids didn't grow all that much it, uh, in terms of house prices uh, throughout this uh, period. Uh, it grew, every place grew during the pandemic, but uh, uh, Grand Rapids was at the lower end um, and other places like Austin were at the high end. So now Grand Rapids is growing by, I forget the number, I think it was 10 or 12 percent uh, year over year. Uh, and some other Midwestern cities, they're largely in the Midwest, some are in the South, um, are, are showing pretty healthy uh, increases. Miami, as I recall, is another one. And um, so places that uh, had less increase over time um, are now able to be more affordable and therefore notwithstanding the higher interest rates again you have a lot of qualified buyers and so those qualified buyers uh, are able to move up the the prices or buoy the prices in in those areas and then the austins of the world and the uh, some of the other places are uh, which which had very strong growth particularly during the pandemic period but pre-pandemic uh, are now having to take a breather uh, and that just is the way you know markets markets work. But in most places, again, that national number of uh, something at three and a half uh, months inventory, uh, I think there were only a couple of markets that we surveyed or that we get data on that had a um, uh, a month's inventory in excess of seven. So uh, our research shows that the equilibrium point between uh, house prices rising or declining uh, switches at around seven percent months inventory, and uh, uh, and there are very few markets that are above seven percent. Uh, therefore, there are very few, mar relatively few markets that are declining. Do you have in your research um, any indication of what those markets that do reach that level? Let's call it seven months of inventory, where there's an excess of spec homes, second homes. Um, vacation homes? Has there been some glut? I mean, this was obviously a huge phenomena pre-GFC, yeah. but is is that really a factor in what you're seeing right but now? We we haven't seen that as a big factor. And, um, you know, this gets back to the broader question that I'm sure we'll get to, David, is, you know, the whole supply issue. Um, lots of people, both uh, political uh, uh, officials or, or public officials and uh you know, pundits and newspapers and others uh, like to uh, find uh, the the uh, 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 someone they can lay the blame on, and so they're very quick to blame foreign investors or uh, uh, Airbnb or uh, second home buyers or whatever. Um, and our research shows um, that that those impacts. Uh, a uh, and and also large institutional investors. That's another big one. Uh, uh, our research shows that those impacts are are pretty modest. Uh, it really comes back to uh, the failings of the uh, 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 public officials in and and um, the electorate to some extent in not allowing more supply to be built. If more supply were allowed to be built, we wouldn't be talking about the shortage that. Uh, we're constantly facing. And if more supply were to be built, and which is uh, the subject we'll delve into at a deeper level here in a moment, 
But this is this hypothetical question that I have had an opinion on for some time that I'm rethinking because I've confounded more and more year by year by the complexity of data that exists in this space. But I would have said previously that um, low supply and the policy a landscape that is keeping greater supply from coming online is serving as a sort of artificial um, base underneath housing prices. And that once uh, greater supply were to come online, you you right now you see good home price appreciation still staying there in the mid single digits, bec- but in the context of very little volume, very little transactions, <clears throat> that statement you made at the beginning, there are enough qualified buyers right now relative to that pool of activity. If we had greater supply, my logical sequence says that therefore you would have less qualified borrowers as a numerator divided by a denominator of more available housing stock. And therefore, prices would have to correct lower in order to clear the market. But that seems like a very bold call to make when nothing has caused home price depreciation other than a credit bubble of 2008 for quite some time. Um, Am I wrong to assume that greater housing supply, on one hand, would be a wonderful positive to a country that desperately needs more housing stock, but on the other hand, may not lower prices as much as my uh, classically trained understanding of supply and demand would suggest? Well, our our research shows that if you um, build more, but let's start, let's step back a a second. What, What really drives home prices uh, is the supply, but also the demand, which is coming from jobs. Jobs create demand for housing. There's some demographic factors that also are present, depending on right now we've got the you know the millennials are a large cohort and they're a large group of home buyers. But in general, uh, putting that to the side, the two things that drive how home prices are uh, what's the supply. Uh, of existing homes, plus what gets built new as additional, minus what gets uh, uh, torn down or whatever, lost to fire, whatever. Um, and then what's job growth? And part of the job growth is job and wage growth. If if jobs are going up in absolute numbers and wages are going up faster than inflation in an area, that creates more demand and more buying power, and that creates more demand uh, for, for homes. Um, so if if that's the the big driver, uh, what we've had over the last decades is we've had too many jobs chasing too few homes on average most of the time. We've been in a seller's market most of the time since uh, uh, the early 1990s. Uh, the only time we haven't been in the seller's market was in those few years after um, or during, I guess, the great financial crisis after 2007 to about 2011. Other than that, we've been in a seller's market pretty much the entire time. Uh, so that's one big picture item. The other big picture item- Can I interrupt there uh, before we go to the next? Sure. Using Austin as an example, you mentioned uh, you know, that it's it's a, the leader of the pack at some depreciation year over year, yet it's actually healthy in job and wage growth. Is that just a matter of the interplay with the other variables that the existing supply 
is now too high based on how hot the market's been, that even a pretty healthy job and wage growth is is still leading to softened market conditions? Yeah, you can get over your skis in terms of prices relative to job and wage growth. And, you know, Austin, during the pandemic, uh, you know, the, the Fed really did a number on the housing market. It just drove prices up tremendously everywhere in the United States. But while on average, they were going up at 16% a year for the better part of two years, year over year for better part of two years. In some markets, they were going up close to 30%. And in the slow markets were going up 10 or 12%, which 10 or 12 was an unheard of number, you know, not too long ago yet. Uh, the slowest growing markets were going up at that rate. Um, so that when I say that you have some markets that were lagging, they still had you know good appreciation, but nothing compared to the Austins and and some of the places in Florida. Um, what we look at is uh, over time, as you add uh, supply um, and you look at the number of jobs and wage growth and all of that, does adding more supply actually tamp down house price appreciation? And we have unequivocal evidence that yes, it tamps it down. Places and Raleigh is a perfect example. Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, uh, where for for thirty years Raleigh was more or less keeping up. It's one of the fastest growing places in the country, but it was also one of the largest uh, home building places in the country. And so for during that time period, it was keeping up largely. Uh, with supply and demand. And so house prices, while they were going up, and in, you know, inflation is, is part of that, while they were going up, they weren't going up like in many other areas, particularly on the West Coast and, and uh, parts of uh, the New York area, et cetera. Um, and uh, so if you keep that construction going, uh, you will tamp down that house price appreciation. There will be periods where uh, the 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 micro forces that are sort of going on the more near term forces can overwhelm that. But in general, if you keep uh, up with the demand, you will uh, keep house prices from going you know up uh, much faster than inflation. The way I, we describe it is, if you can have house prices going up roughly a little bit more than inflation or wage growth, pick whatever measure you want. Uh, then the affordability stays relatively constant. It may go up slightly, but relatively constant. Austin was another place until 2019 was doing a very good job of keeping up with the market, as opposed to a place like San Jose, which was doing the exact opposite. San Jose was doing virtually nothing to keep up with the market and ended up with the highest house prices in the country and the most unaffordable uh, housing market in, in the country. Um, so the... The, the and there is a tension between building more um, and uh, having periods when house prices may decline, but that's not so much due to building more, particularly if it's done relatively slowly. That's we will get into this later. One of the reasons we like what we call light touch density, which uh, tends to bring units on a few at a time on a parcel. Um, and it's done by tens of thousands of different players. Um, and those players are making all those individual decisions. And by making those individual decisions, reacting to the market very quickly and pulling their horns in when uh, thing, the winds are changing, uh, that's very different from the national builders who have to you know, plan two or three, four years out. And they have a lot of commitments going. And it's very hard for them to uh, slow the battleship. 
uh, if you're uh, working with these tens of thousands of smaller players, they're more in rowboats than battleships. Um, and that makes that makes a difference. Uh, so there are a lot of things going on here, but the bottom line is we just need more housing. And if we get it and we can bring it online, not in, you know, that's why I'm not in favor for a lot of reasons of any big federal involvement here, because the federal government will try to do it all at once, uh, as it so often does, by throwing tons and tons of money around. And then there'll be an explosion in supply. And then all of the unintended consequences occur, including the overbuilding that uh, the federal government will inevitably run into. Uh, that happened back in the early 1970s uh, when there was a huge push to the last big uh, supply effort, national supply effort by the federal government was in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and it created a massive overhang in the housing market, a massive default uh, uh, crisis, et cetera, in the early uh, 70s. And uh, you know, so you want something that is really market-driven and is being done by thousands and thousands of small players. Now, the big players have a role to play, but you, you want to have lots and lots of small players because they can move very nimbly. Don't a lot of small players function in the replacement space? And so you end up maybe tearing down a 3,000-foot home and rebuilding a 4,500-foot home. You've added value. You've increased the quality of the product. But one unit went away and one unit came on, no net supply. Right. Um, your data gets into that. Your data differentiates. It's one of the reasons why building permits can be very deceiving relative to actually new housing stock because there is so much replacement that goes on that isn't actually building new supply. Yeah, and in LA, for example, uh, which doesn't build much new single-family no. housing, more than half of it is uh, tearing down of an existing, it's not a 3,000 square foot house. In LA's case, it might be a 1,600 square foot house, right. uh, uh, what was known as a starter home back in 1960 uh, that now sells for a million dollars and replacing it with a 4,000 square foot uh, McMansion, as we call it. Uh, and so half of the houses in LA that get single family houses that get built uh, are actually teardowns that are replaced by McMansion. So there's no net new addition of supply, and you've taken away what, you know, a million-dollar house, which most of which was land, and replaced it with a $3 million house. Uh, so affordability also uh, wasn't uh, hurt. I have no—wasn't uh, help. Uh, I have no problem with people doing that. My issue is very simple. Um, if you can build a 4,000-square-foot McMansion on a parcel— uh, why can't an owner have the right to build 4,000 square foot townhouses on the same parcel and sell them for whatever? And now instead of selling at $3 million, you'll be selling each of those townhouses uh, for $750,000 or whatever the number is, uh, or $800,000, whatever the market uh, brings. Uh, but now you actually have added three additional units on the same parcel, um, and you've either replicated the uh, price of the house that got torn down, or you've actually brought it down. Our research shows that at four, you're just dancing on the point where you can either be a push or bring it down some. So so there's a regulatory uh, headwind keeping market forces from optimizing value creation and new supply. Absolutely. So the there's a, 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 a phrase when a, an appraiser values a property, um, and they come up with market value. It's the market value of a property 
at its highest and best use. Mm -hmm. Very important thing, because highest and best use means highest and best economic use. And highest and best use, that's legal. And so if the only thing that's legal is another single family detached dwelling, and the land is very expensive, as virtually all of California is uh, in terms of the land, then um, a teardown makes sense because the highest and best use is not the existing structure. Um, that's an inefficient use of land to have uh, a parcel where 80% of the value is in the land and 20% is in the structure. Um, left to its own devices, the market would be flipped. It would be 20% would be in land and 80% would be in the structure. Um, but we're, we're, we're nowhere near that in large swaths of uh, the country. And um, therefore, the highest and best use is to tear down the existing structure and build that, take that million-dollar example, build the $3 million, and now you have a land cost that's roughly 33%, uh, not virtually 100%. Uh, if you're tearing down what's there, uh, the land is basically all you have. Um, and so you've gone from 100% land share down back down to 33% in the example I just gave. Um, now, if you were to do uh, a fourplex on that same property, uh, four townhouses, let's say, um, and you still start with that same million dollars, uh, but now each townhouse is on $250,000 worth of land, basically. Uh, the land value does go up a bit because of it's, it has an option to be used for another purpose, uh, but it doesn't go up a tremendous amount, particularly if the zoning allows that more generally. Uh, so supply offsets those types of distortions to some extent, uh, added, su uh, added supply and flexibility. Uh, but if you then put a house that, as I said, uh, is going to sell for uh, $850,000, let's say, uh, uh, $250,000 is the land. So you're now looking at $600,000 for the structure, two fifty dollars for uh, the uh, land. And uh, so that's about, again, a 30% market share. So you've, again, brought the market share down to a percentage that um, is more um, amenable to what market conditions would like to be if there weren't the artificial constraints um, that single-family zoning puts on these in terms of restricting the owner's use of, of, uh, of their property. And how much of the... Um the current lay of the land do you think is related to mortgage finance, Fannie, Freddie, um, the Fed? It seems that this is one of the first times that we're really not talking about credit and availability of credit. The cost of credit's high. It's a big factor, obviously. But um, it, it seems to have taken a backseat to these supply considerations that you're talking about. I know your background, and I'll remind listeners, had served as the chief, uh, it was the chief credit officer or risk yeah. officer? Chief credit, credit officer, yeah. Uh, and, and I always want to be clear, this was back in the 1980s uh, uh, and was not at the scene of the crime in the 2000s, but you have a background at Fannie Mae and obviously decades of, of executive experience in the housing sector, mortgage in particular. Um, is there is, is there a sense in which there's distortions right now? You wrote a lot during COVID about GSE waivers of appraisal taking place, but that seems to have slowed. I don't see a ton of cash out refinance going on. Obviously, the cost of doing so is inhibitive, but it just generally feels that we're not actually in 
a mortgage-related housing market where we really are in just a supply-demand market? I think that's right. So the the leverage uh, levels today are roughly about a third of where they were uh, heading into the great financial crisis. So at the end of 06, early 07, we, we have a, an index that we call the stress mortgage default rate index, and it measures the the stress mortgage uh, default probability or, or uh, uh, if we had another scenario like the one in 06, 07, not suggesting that we would, but if we were to have one, um, we can then measure uh, how loans would perform if you had a scenario like that. Much can I, like, can I, uh, can I interrupt if, you though to ask you a question there? Because I hear this a lot and I'm actually really curious. How do you wait for houses that have no mortgage in that data? When you say a third of the leverage, you must be including in the denominator houses that have no mortgage. No, they, these are actually just the these are just the houses with mortgages. But but mortgages haven't come down by two thirds relative. No, no, to no. The the risk level has come down by two thirds. Oh, oh, okay. So okay. the 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 primary components of the risk uh, index uh, are. I mean, there's loan type, loan purpose, loan this, you know, all those things. But the big three, if we're talking about uh, owner occupied purchase transactions, the big three factors are: um, what's the credit score? What's the debt to income ratio? And what's the loan to value or combined loan to value? Those are the big three drivers. Uh, loan terms, another one, but those are the big three. And um, and so that's what's come down when we when we measure the risk inherent in the the loans that are being originated uh, today or last month or last year. We we've been doing this since 2012. We actually have some data going back to. Uh, the uh, the the early 1990s, uh, we can actually show uh, ba again based on that event uh, that occurred in 0607. Think of it as a hurricane. If you were trying to figure out whether a house could withstand a hurricane of 150 miles an hour, you don't actually need a hurricane of 150 miles an hour. An engineer could figure out based on the characteristics of the building and and all of its structural components uh, how well it could stand up. Uh, we do the same thing for mortgages, and so the the risk uh, profile has is is a lot lower. Uh, also, as you pointed out, the the refinance uh, or cash out refinance and refinance businesses is, is uh, waned substantially. That is another big component of risk. People don't tend to realize that, but uh, Fannie and Freddie not only got hit pretty hard on purchase transactions, but got hit very hard on the refi. Uh, because those refi transactions ended up not having the quiet, the the loan to value uh, was miscalculated uh, on those loans big time, particularly the cash out refis. Uh, and so the I think there is a recognition, even by notwithstanding the the keep they keep trying to do something, and FHA FHFA and FHA keeps trying to do something. There's very little the federal government can do to promote supply because the only tool in their toolbox is uh, to quote make housing more affordable by increasing leverage, which then gives increases demand. And so if your only way to approach supply is to increase demand. Um, it, it's a fool's errand. And the Fed also runs into this problem. The only tool, uh, effective tools in the Fed's toolbox is to lower interest rates and to do quantitative easing, both of which um, do nothing to add to supply, but do lots to add to demand. 
And if you know, I, I can fault the Fed for lots of things, um, but the biggest uh, fault, uh, uh, well, actually, the two biggest. One is we told them time and time again that it was time to stop. And when did we start telling them that? We told them that in August of 2020. Yeah. yeah. We said, look at house prices are coming back. Demand is over the top. Uh, months inventory is dropped to record levels already. Um, and you're still priming the pump with uh, ZERP and zero interest rate and with uh, quantitative uh, easing. Um, and the second thing I would really fault them for is um, once you raise prices, uh, which they did tremendously, we had a 40% increase in home prices roughly over that two-year pandemic uh, period. Um uh, that was really unprecedented. Uh, house prices, as you point, we point discussed, haven't come back down. So you've created a new level. So even if prices only go up five percent or five and a half percent, it's five and a half percent off of an increase forty percent that was on top of already a healthy increase that had been going on from since two thousand twelve. Um, since two thousand twelve, we've been in a virtually continuous home price boom in terms of of home prices going up. Uh, with the the big boom occurring during the pandemic, and and again that boom continues again five and a half percent. What we expect for the end of two thousand twenty three is still a pretty healthy. Uh, forget interest rates and everything else. If, if inflation is three percent, five and a half percent is still a healthy increase. Uh, and wages aren't going up necessarily five and a half percent. So you're still running into uh, house prices are going up faster than. Um, wages, which leads to what we call um, displacement pressure. Displacement pressure is what is the median house price divided by median income, and is that number, that ratio, increasing? And if it's increasing, uh, that makes it harder and harder for people to afford a home in the in the aggregate, and it pushes them out of first uh, owner-occupied, they can't afford the owner-occupied or they keep moving down uh, the scale and eventually it pushes them into rental and it's a big game of musical chairs. Eventually, um, the people at the bottom uh, don't have any chairs and then we end up with the massive homeless numbers that we just saw released by HUD uh, at the uh, near the end of December where homeless rates were up 12% nationwide from 2022 to 2023. Um, and that's directly related. The Fed has a tremendous amount of responsibility for that result. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. So I, I want to conclude with with three di different questions. One of which you just brought up in your in your comments about the Fed, their culpability. You mentioned obviously the prolonged period of ZERP post COVID. 
They really ought to have stopped ZERP by August of 2020. They kept it on till about March or April of 2022. Um, but you mentioned quantitative easing, and we'll just call it QE from here. I believe you're 100% right that QE added to the octane that the Fed was putting into housing. But I believe that to the extent that QE uh, was a tool for controlling the long end of the curve, that it was basically a rate manipulation device. Nice. Many will look at the fact that a high composition of the bonds the Fed was buying with money that doesn't exist, which is what quantitative easing essentially is, were mortgage-backed securities. And will assume that there was something the Fed was doing in buying mortgage backs versus treasuries that also added to upward housing pressure. And I've been unable, going back to studying QE1 through th three in the Bernanke years, um, I've been unable to figure out why that would be. Um, that in other words, if all of QE composition was treasuries, I still think it would have manipulated the housing market by putting downward pressure on the yield curve. But what I don't understand is them buying existing pools of mortgages that were out of GSEs, how that was doing anything to impact housing prices per se. Do you think the composition of QE from mortgage back to treasuries mattered? Or are you on my side that it was really just a rate device? That's a great question. Uh, I focus much more on the mortgage side, and they bought trillions of dollars yeah. of mortgages, and they still hold trillions of dollars of mortgages. Uh, at, at one point, they were buying basically the entire market. Yeah. Uh, they they were the price uh, for mortgage-backed securities. And we ended up with mortgage rates going down to, I think, the low for a mortgage rate was 2.75%. Um, 30 so, year you, for 30 you, years, you had five years at 2.1%. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, I, I don't, as I just think about it, I don't know, we would have gotten that low if they were just buying treasuries because the, the treasuries they were buying that, that had shorter duration. Uh, I think the treasury department wasn't selling a ton of long treasuries during, uh, the QE period. I, I could be wrong, but I kind of remember seeing that. Right. Uh, but by definition, they were buying largely, because that's what the market was, 30-year uh, fixed-rate mortgages, which themselves have a duration not of 30 years, but of seven or eight years, whatever, now 10 or 11, 12 years, whatever. Um, but they were buying long-duration assets. So I think it's the duration play yeah. is what did it. And the way you get the duration play the most is to buy the mortgage-backed securities, uh, which is what they were doing. The um, the second question I would like you to cover real quick as we go is something you brought up briefly at the beginning, but it gets covered a lot right now. And and uh, for myself as a guy on the center right, a movement conservative, um, I'm always open to things that the right is not covering, that the left is, that are genuine economic or cultural problems. But I've been unconvinced to date by the populist angst about institutional ownership of residential housing, particularly private equity, um, the notion that we are artificially bidding up the prices of homes because of widespread institutional ownership. Um, but your expertise in the field is going to be more convincing to people than my own. 
I'd love to hear your take on where you think the Blackstones of the world are hurting the little guy when it comes to buying a house. Well, I, I think you have to go back to, again, the great financial crisis, so, for, which was engineered by bad policy by the federal government, which I've written extensively about in the whole affordable housing uh, uh, craze that started in the early 1990s in earnest. Uh, and really drove Fannie and Freddie to compete directly with uh, FHA and uh, the subprime market. Uh, you mentioned I had been chief credit officer at Fannie Mae in uh, the, the the mid to late 80s. If you had said to me, um, you know, at that point, oh, Ed, I want you to compete with FHA, I would have thought you were crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, why would we do that? Uh, FHA is FHA and Fannie Mae is Fannie Mae. They don't even, they don't mix. They were like oil and water. They were not um, in the same markets. And I've written extensively about that many years ago. Um, but Congress basically forced them to compete with FHA and to compete with subprime, uh, which they did uh, tremendously, uh, and then forced both FHA uh, out. FHA was already pretty far out, but really forced the private sector um, to, to move out uh, just by crowding them out of the good loan market. Because um, Fannie and Freddie were still buying all the good loans, uh, they, they didn't leave those behind. Uh, there weren't as many of them, but they they still bought all the good loans. Um, so what happens with the great financial crisis is that credit tightens tremendously uh, because prices are collapsing. Uh, uh, credit have, uh, everyone's pulling in their horns. Fannie, Freddie, FHA, and subprime is largely goes away, uh, et cetera. And so there aren't a lot of uh, buyers, particularly uh, buyers at the lower end of the price spectrum, but prices are really low. Uh, prices have collapsed in many areas by 50% or more, uh, but there aren't a lot of buyers. There was a point at which uh, Cape Coral, uh, Florida, and, and Fort Myers was one of the worst. And it was like, will it ever come back? Well, the answer now we know is yes. Uh, but at the time, the, it was questionable. So who had the money back then in 2009, 2010, 2011 were these funds um, that you've mentioned, these uh, investment funds, and they had money and they can go in and just buy buy the market, uh, sight unseen. They just bought houses. And there was a dearth of buyers, of regular buyers uh, for, at that point in time, because the federal government had basically destroyed most of them, destroyed the credit histories of most of those people, et cetera. They'd been through foreclosure and they just were on the sidelines. And so these companies were able to scoop up lots and lots of houses. Um, and uh, But that lasted for a relatively short period of time. I, I, I want to say maybe 24, maybe 28 months um, during this early time period. And then they basically were more or less, they were buying at a tremendous rate. They were full up. There were still lots of houses coming on the market, lots of foreclosures still happening, but they were pretty much moved to the uh, a, a period where they were just uh, uh, you know, treading water. Um, and so the the their role in the market was very large for a relatively short early period of time and then faded. But it seems like the media and a lot of politicians think that that role continued. Uh, so uh, Freddie Mac did a really uh, great study on this that shows that uh, their involvement in the market has been actually pretty modest over the last, I forget, five or, five or so years. Uh, the mom and pops, as they're called, are still the backbone of that market. They've always been the backbone of that market, except for this you know, really, relatively short time period of dislocation caused by federal policy. Uh, so you have a federal policy that causes it, 
um, the market responds, uh, and then they get blamed uh, for the response that the, the government engendered. Uh, yeah. I know you're, you're very familiar with that. Indeed. Uh, that's, it's great commentary and very succinct, helpful understanding of the, the context that's led to this, this moment. And I think, you know, anecdotally, uh, that's often the case with populist angst is it's sort of um, understandable ire that is misdirected. That there could be uh, something people deserve to be upset about, but they, they target it at the wrong, wrong place. The final question is, I'm just real curious, because I know we have people that listen to this podcast that are in a very high price point in what they live in and what they might want to be buying in houses. And of course, the bulk of America in, in a more mid-level price point, and obviously there's lower price tiers as well. I'd love to think that there's podcast listeners across all level of price point. But I'm curious if any of the data you shared today um, or any of the broader points about the state of the market are meaningfully different in one tier versus another. In other words, do you see significant house depreciation, price depreciation at the high end, even though the median is still moving in that kind of mid four to 5% single digit range? Or is this pretty constant across price tiers, Ed? The the history going back 40 years, it, with one exception during the pandemic, is that the we, we, we track four price tiers, low, low, moderate, moderate, high, and high. Um, and those are based on Fannie, Freddie, FHA parameters is how we came up with them. But um, so we track those four price tiers. Uh, and for the last 40 years, the low price tier uh, uh, has gone up faster than the high price tier. Uh, and that's because of a lot of reasons. Uh, one is there's a lot more leverage available in the low price tier, uh, except uh, during certain time periods, which I'll mention in a moment. Uh, secondly, um, there tends to be a scarcity of houses at the low price tier uh, in general, uh, just because it's hard to build houses at the low price tier new. Um, and, um, and so there's just, uh, uh, more of a supply demand imbalance at the low end. And so you have this long-term trend that's been going on for 40 years. Uh, now during downturns, um, that what went up the most and to come down the most, um, uh, sort of last in first out. Uh, and so the, the low end buyers that get in late, uh, then get pushed out very quickly when there's a turn in the market. That turn in the market occurred in uh, late 06, uh, 07, 08, 09, um, and you know was brutal uh, for those uh, lower end buyers. The market in general, you know, was was hurt a lot, but it was the the at the lower end that was the most. We ended up the one exception ended up during the pandemic. Um, for the first time, we had the high end of the market going up faster than uh, the low end of the market, and I have a an analogy or a metaphor that I use, which is called the punch bowl uh, metaphor, which is based on uh, William McChensley Martin's famous uh, speech in New York in, I think, 1955, when he talked about the job of the uh, Fed, uh, Federal Reserve is like the job of a, of a uh, chaperone at a party is to take away the punch bowl just when the party gets going. Um, and he posited that uh, view. Uh, of course, uh, our recent Fed uh, Reserve Chairman have forgotten that analogy, 
uh, and they just keep spiking the punch bowl. So what happens is you, I, I've used the analogy of two punch bowls. You have the federal agencies, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, et cetera, that are spiking a leverage punch bowl. And you have the Fed that's spiking a monetary punch bowl. And those two punch bowls operate independently. Think of them as two different accelerators um, without a break, particularly. Uh, and so um, what happened in the early uh, aught years where both punch bowls are getting spiked simultaneously. Uh, Greenspan is uh, keeping interest rates down near zero at the short end. Um, and Fannie, Freddie, FHA, and and everything else is is adding leverage at on the mon- on the uh, leverage punch bowl. Where we are today, and where we were in the pandemic, the leverage punch bowl actually got less spiked. Lenders actually pulled their horns in some uh, because they were uncertain what was going to happen, and so they kind of got uh, a little less leverage oriented. But remember, leverage was already a lot less, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but the Fed went all in and went to you know 200 proof uh, in terms of the punch bowl. If you're looking at the leverage punch bowl, the only people get to drink from that today and for the and since 2010 or 11 or so are the lower end of the market. Uh, the higher end of the market, they're not eligible. They're not first time buyers. They're, they don't meet the income requirements, whatever. Um, whereas the monetary punch bowl, everyone gets to drink from that. Whether you have, if you're buying a house and you're at the low end of the market or you're in a $6 million, you all get to drink from the same punch bowl. And therefore, uh, the impact on the housing market was enhanced on the upper end because the upper end all of a sudden had a massive increase in buying power uh, uh, due to the advantage of these low interest rates. Uh, they had They didn't have to increase their leverage um, they just had to say, I'm going to take advantage of this extra buying power and bid up prices, which is is what they did. Um, I would like to, to, if I might, cover yeah. one topic uh, that, um, uh, you know, gets back to what, what we talked about a, a little bit, which is, you know, how to increase the supply. Uh, this all goes back to, um, you know, zoning and land use restrictions. Uh, which also started with the federal government uh, back in 1922 uh, when uh, the Commerce Department came up with its uh, model state enabling ordinance for uh, uh, zoning, which was basically built around exclusionary zoning. You would only allow one type of of structure to be built, and that type of structure that was at the top of the pecking order was a single-family detached house. It was well known at the time that single-family detached houses cost more than uh, other uh, types of houses, duplexes and triplexes. Um, yet uh, they also, the federal government and, and local governments, uh, wanted to keep uh, minorities and uh, ethnic minorities out of neighborhoods. And the easiest way to do it, uh, if you couldn't do it explicitly, was to basically make housing more expensive. So ironically, the goal of zoning in 1922 was to make housing more expensive. Well, they succeeded in that. Um, It was done under a provision uh, in our constitution, uh, which is the exercise of the police power under the constitution. And that police power is supposed to be exercised for the general health and and welfare of uh, the populace. And so we had a... A uh, program that was put in place basically nationwide, not because Congress mandated it, but because the federal government basically jawboned it uh, for quite a few years. 
And it created a huge chasm between having policies that are to promote the general welfare, which is the whole purpose of exercising the police power, uh, to one that basically uh, made housing scarce. The whole result of this was to make housing scarce. And so we're now uh, running into the this, this scarcity issue. And the solution uh, isn't more policy interventions um, to do other things like inclusionary zoning is one of the things. I say that's real chutzpah. You basically took away uh, private property rights and then you blame the private sector for not building enough housing after you took away their ability to do it. And then you say, I'll give you some of that ability back if you cross-subsidize a bunch of uh, of the units. That's called inclusionary zoning. Um, and so uh, the and I and I was taken, you know, by one of your earlier capital records. Uh, you don't want to reward past governmental failure, um, which, uh, if you were to view the lack of housing abundance as a cue for more government uh, and intervention and expanded subsidies, that's the exact wrong. Th- conclusion to reach. Uh, that just leads to more government profit-seeking and cronyism with government picking winners, uh, usually large players who can deal with the endless rules and all the red tape, and it creates a bunch of losers, property owners, small businesses, renters, and workers. So what we need to do is um, change the zoning structure to get back to the way it used to be, which is, yes, that fourplex, uh, which is no larger than the McMansion that's going up or the existing 3,000 square foot house or whatever, let those exist side by side with these other houses and let the owner of the property decide what the highest and best use that's legal is. And what we know is if you allow that, um, they will pick the higher density. Uh, There's more money to be made there. Well, and of course, it's not just the owner in that case, it's the owner acting and making the decision, but it's the market, right? The the owner is responding to market demand, market reality, price signals, and so forth. It's all the government can't possibly do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That that is a really helpful, direct um, application of the broader principles that free marketeers uh, like myself are advocating for constantly on this podcast and others, um, groups like AEI, where where you work, groups like National Review that host this podcast, um, you're talking about fighting for just general principles that essentially in real life, you get to see what ends up going on with these unintended consequences. And I think what you've laid out there is an incredibly constructive solution to a problem um, that doesn't require policy intervention. It requires the removal of policy impediment. Um, Ed, I can't thank you enough for your time and your insights. The the conversation's been utterly thrilling for me and uh, looking forward to what 2024 has to present. And I would certainly love for you to, to come back later in the year and talk to us more about housing here on Capitol Record. Happy to do it. Thank you, uh, David. Happy New Year. Thanks so much, Ed. Happy New Year. Well, I think that I uh, kept my promise this week about what that episode would entail. Uh, Ed is a treasure trove of information. Appreciate his perspective. I do highly commend to you the research that he and his colleagues put together there at AEI, and I hope you benefited from our talk as well. Um, Looking forward next week, we're going to be bringing back um, the Viewpoint Diversity Initiative. We don't want to let 2024 go too deep without referring 
to some of the uh, battles in which we find ourselves engaged in. Jeremy Tedesco, uh, Chief Corporate Engagement at uh, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, senior counsel there, and really um, tackling some of the big picture issues with corporate America in the midst of the woke movement, ESG, DEI. We're all familiar with the landscape, and uh, Jeremy is going to be a wonderful person to talk to you next week. So with that said, thanks for listening to National Review's Capital Record. Please share it far and wide. Do what you can if you're so inclined to help us grow the listener base of uh, National Review's Capital Record dedicated to a defense of the free and virtuous society.